0: Do you think you're here by chance this morning? Or do you really think that you are here because of the intentional decision of the creator of the universe? Do you think as you look at yourself, do you think that I'm just a a product of fate? Or do you look at yourself and, and believe that you are placed in this world for a purpose? Do you you think you just happened into this world or is there some reason that you exist? I mean, these are big questions. The answer to them affect every moment of our lives. I guess if I put it more simply, when you get up in the morning and you go off to work or to school or even to church, is there some purpose For what you do, is there some purpose giving meaning to what you do? These are the questions that people have wrestled with for centuries. There are countless uh, books, countless movies, countless works of art, uh, music lyrics that have been written wrestling for this. As I tried to think of which of the countless ones I could think of that I wanted to mention, I thought immediately of Victor Hugo's classic work uh, Les Miserables. Uh, These are the questions that that permeate that book, that penetrate under that book, because as this uh, once uh, criminal, Jean Valjean, who'd been in, in prison for so many years simply for stealing a loaf of bread and had no meaning for his life, came out of prison, he still had no meaning for his life, no direction, until he had a turning point in his life and experienced the grace of God through a priest one day. And it changed everything that he did. Uh, Some of us, I'm guessing many of us here in Southern California, have heard the musical that's been based on Les Mis. And uh, the uh, lyricist of that, the one who did the English lyrics, lyrics, Herbert uh, Kretzmer, really captured so much of what's underneath the whole book in the lyrics of of one of the young men who sings just before so many of the young revolutionaries die. Do you you remember that part? Any of you who've seen it? The barricade is there, they are singing the song, knowing that perhaps the next day many would die. And one of them sings, will the world remember you when you fall? Could it be? Could it be? Your death means nothing at all. Don't you want to just sing it? Nothing at all? Is your life just one more lie? I tell you, unless there is a God like the God we read about who reveals himself in his word, who made everything who is personally involved in it, who has a mission in this world, who draws us into this mission so that our lives can have eternal consequences unless we believe in that kind of God. Then the answer to the young man's questions as he sings would be a resounding yes. Life and death don't really mean anything ultimately. Life itself, in terms of it being a meaningful thing, is is just a big lie. And my contention is, That our lives can't find any real lasting meaning until you and I come into a personal relationship with the creator God who's doing something in this world. And that you and I don't really find a life that matters until we bring into our lives and we surrender our lives to the creator God who is doing something in drawing us to himself, doing a work in us, but not only that, ready to do a work through us so that our lives make a difference. And I believe that from the depths of my being, that that's the kind of God who is at work in this world and that we want to talk about and meet afresh every time we gather here. In other words, the way that so many followers of Jesus have put it over the years, God has a call upon each one of our lives. Do you believe that? Now, I know that when I make that kind of claim, and I do it often, you know that, that God has a call upon your life, that what that looks like as it works out raises countless questions. You know how I know that it raises countless questions? Because every time I talk about it, you send them to me. (laughs) And so this is a complex issue. Questions like, does this sense that there is a call from God mean that all of us Are called to be pastors or missionaries? No. Does that call mean that you and I should be able to expect, especially in the light of the kind of messages that we've been having, that we should be able to hear one day a voice coming out of a burning bush, or maybe smoke signals coming out of the worship folder? telling us specifically what it is that God has made us for so that we never have any questions the rest of our lives and every moment is directed? No. Will this call of God be something that means that we no longer have to continue to seek God in His Word, His morals and His ways to understand how He works? Does it mean that we don't have to gather here and to hear afresh from Him? The answer is no. So what am I saying? I'm just telling you, God's made you for a reason. I'm going to be telling you today that every day and every moment of your life matters. I am saying that the God who created this universe made it for a reason. There's something he is doing in this world. There's a linear direction for this world. There's a mission of God in this world. And what that means is it has implication for your own life. God's mission in your life is he's going to make you what he created you to be. So that when he's done, you and I are going to be complete in Christ, conformed to the image of Christ. And not only that, his mission is not only what he will do in us. But one of the beautiful things is the Bible keeps telling us a part of God's mission is that he draws us into it. He uses people like you and me to do what He's doing in this world until people of every tribe and language and nation have come to know Him and found life through Him and give glory and praise to Him. I I am saying that even when you and I are unsure about why I have this job or no job, that God knows. I'm telling you that even when you and I are unsure about why am I having to go through this trial today? Why is life so hard? That it is not outside of what God is trying to do. If we can learn to trust him. And I'm even saying that if you find yourself stuck in a bad relationship. Or no relationship at all, it seems like. That God will use even those times to do his work in you and me. And put us in places that we would never otherwise have gone and do his work there. I'm telling you that there is a way that in the midst of those times where we don't quite know what he's doing, there is a way that he would have us to live, which is one of the reasons we need to come here week by week by week and come to know this word week by week by week. Because God is ready to do his work in us and through us in good times and say, send us those, Lord. But also in bad times and even in those times that seem trivial to us. And it seems like we're doing stuff that makes no difference at all. God says, I put you in that place to do eternal things in and through you. And today we're going to look at that lesson again. As we look at a really interesting man named Elisha. Louise read this so well. It's a great, great story. It's told in several different parts. We're looking at two of them. It starts in 1 Kings 19. If you brought a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, I'll just talk talk you through it. The lessons that he teaches us about how we walk with him in this world. Where he still gives us this ability to make decisions, but even if we decide to obey or disobey, he's still going to get his work done. I mean, it's hard to figure that one out. But still, his uh, lessons like this teach us how God works in us and fulfills his call in and through us, through this man named Elijah. So what I'm going to do, I want us to look at the story really quickly. The story once again, and then some lessons. Just that simple. The story, and then the lessons. Okay, the story. Uh, 1 Kings 19, when you open it up. You see what Pastor Jeff Leo talked about last week. The, this famous prophet named Elijah. And in the first part of First Kings 19, we see him have this magnificent, miraculous triumph over the prophets of Baal and the evil king Ahab. Remember that? So really, he should have been, never again, any doubts, and that ever, any difficulties, he's seen the power of God, right? And then in the very next scene, we see him in the pits of depression. You know, there are some scholars who look at that and say, you know, it must have been that they dropped the scroll and the story got mixed up because it shouldn't be like that. Those of us who come here, what do we say? Life is like that. We are like that. We come here one day and God speaks to us and we go out singing hallelujah. And then the next Monday we wake up in the pits of discouragement. That's happened with Elijah. So when you meet him, when you come to uh, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 19. Elijah's in the pits. I, I'm telling you, he's hiding away in a cave. He's running from Ahab. Um, he, he, he's hiding his face because he feels so alienated and alone. There are no other ones, God. I'm the only one who is here. He is tired. He is worn out. He just wants to give up. But God won't let him stay in that pity trip. I have a call upon you, Elijah, and my call is to go out and tell some other people about their call. So he goes out and anoints three people for service, and only one of them to what we call professional ministry. One of them to be a prophet, but the other two, of all things, are to politics. The only one we get any details about is the prophet, Elisha, so we will look at him, and the story has several parts. Part one, when you meet Elisha in 1 Kings 19, the man that we meet is a rich and comfortable man. He's living the life that almost everybody in his world would have wanted to live. Now, as Louise was reading, you may say, I didn't really see that. But it's there. And it's there because when we meet him, he is plowing in a field. There are 12 yoke of oxen, so there are 24 oxen in that one field. And he's just doing the 12th. The very way the Hebrew writer puts it, and, and these Jewish story writers are so good. He puts it in such a concise way that he lets us know that this was a rich man. Uh, wealth was often measured by the number of cattle that you had. He had at least 24 oxen and probably he had others. Those are probably the only ones that were plowing in that field. In other words, if you would have looked at Elijah in that, cave, in that cave and then you would have looked at Elisha out there in the field, which one would you have said, that's the call I want you to have for me, God? This is not a hard question in case you wonder. So we meet a wealthy man. And almost certainly, instead of feeling alone, he had a good family life. Because when the gall of God came to him, he wanted to go back and meet with his family and tell his parents goodbye. So I tell you, in just a few sentences, what you have is Elijah and Elisha being put into sharp contrast. One in danger and on the run and in poverty and not knowing what's going on. The other one seeming to have his life all together. A man who the rest of the world would say, I don't want to be like Elijah. I want a life like Elisha. Sounds like if if you lived in 21st century Southern California. Part two. A call from God comes. And it is a call to a life that most people in the world would have found to be much less appealing than what Elisha had. A call from God, but it was to a life that in the eyes of the world looked much less desirable. So what happens is Elijah comes walking up to Elisha, this wealthy man, and he throws his prophet's cloak over him. Now, I'll tell you, when you do this, people say, what on earth is that about? But I think you can understand this. When you threw a cloak or a mantle over somebody, it was a visible demonstration to everybody that the role that the one who had the coat was playing is being passed on to the next. And we still talk about this in our day. When, when businesses have succession plans and somebody's going to become the next CEO or boss, what we talk about is the mantle of leadership being passed on. Have you ever heard that? The mantle being passed on. That goes all the way back to this story where the mantle is passed on. So what's happening is what Elijah had been doing, the call of God upon his life, was now going to be passed on to Elisha. Now, I want us to think about that mantle for a minute. So I went in and was trying to find one, and I went into our children's uh, costumes closet. Little did I know the gems that we had there. Uh, this is an authentic... Uh, Leather, probably made from an oxen, maybe a uh, babe, the blue one. Um, what I want you to think about is that mantle that Elijah had. He had been wearing it for many years, well over three years, probably much longer than, than that. And as he'd been wearing it, he had been on the run almost all the time and for a long period of time. He had been wearing it in that cave. Now, I'm looking out here, those of you who are mothers, can you imagine wanting your son or daughter to wear something like that? It is going to be worn, it is going to be filthy, and it is going to be smelly. So just mark it down. So I thought I wanted to have something. So I was looking for, see if I could find a well-dressed man here in the, man who looks like the success, a measure of success, and... Uh, and so if, if, if he were doing that and successful, let's say maybe working as an engineer at JPL or something like that, and someone came up from behind him and slapped this thing around him. I don't know. This is Tom. I'm not sure that he'd want to have the mantle. What would you think? It would be saying that the life that I've been living is the life that you're now going to live. It would be the kind of thing that, that you would want to run from. And let's face it. I'll pull that off, Tom, because is it as smelly as I said it's going to be? I want to hold on to it. I'm getting to be as bad as Pastor Albert was, don't you think? (laughs) Listen to me. Parents, do you think that you would have wanted your child to receive that mantle? You've had a dream. Your son or daughter is going to become an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer. And now this call to this profession like Elijah? Well, let me just ask you. Which one of those lives would you have chosen? you be honest. Elisha's or Elijah's? Which one would you, which would you have chosen for your children or grandchildren? Which would you have prayed for? See, this, uh, this sermon starting to meddle with us just a bit. See, the issue, if we're going to find the life for which we are made, is not how successful we are in the eyes of the world. It's not how much money we make. Or the prestige of our job title. It is simply being in the place that God would have us to be. Because then and only then will we live the life we were created to live. Does that make sense to you? And for some reason, Elisha was ready for it. Part three. The thrill of knowing that his life matters. What I love is when I read this is that Elisha does not reject that filthy mantle. Far from it. Look at chapter 19, verse 21. He he goes out. First, he wants to make sure he he says goodbye to his parents. But then he throws a huge party for his family and friends. He slaughters all of those oxen, 24 of them at least. I'm just telling you, this was going to be a huge feast. Bigger than any of the weddings, which are the biggest celebrations and feasts in the ancient communities. It was a big celebration. Now the question comes up. Why was he going to celebrate? When he was going to have a life that was going to go from comfort to danger. And from riches to poverty. Would you celebrate that? You won't respond to me, will you? The answer is no. I, I, just, I already know you well enough. The answer, I know myself well enough, I'll just tell you. But here's what I jotted down what I think Elijah is saying by throwing this party. He turned to his people in his neighborhood and he said, I know that you think I have everything that matters. I know that you would like to have the life that I have had of comfort and wealth. But I'll tell you, life has to be a whole lot more than that. I have known that for a long time. And deep down, if you think about it, you know it too. And I want to tell you at last, I have found my life. I have found what God made me for. I know that God made me and he's made me for a reason. I am now going to live in obedience to his call. Woo-hoo! That, that's what's going on right here. <laughs> Again, I wonder if his parents were as excited as Elisha was about it. The thing I want you to make note of is this. A real joy comes. When we begin to live that life. That we were created to live. Part four. The faithful waiting. Oh no pastor. I knew you were going to get that awful word. Waiting. The faithful waiting. That is often a part of the call of God. When you move over to the second part of the story. In 2 Kings chapter 2 beginning with verse 8. 18 years have passed. 18 years. That means that after hearing God's call and getting that mantle put on, after throwing that big feast, Elisha had served for 18 years simply as Elijah's apprentice, as his his assistant. Now, I'll tell you, I know it's important to have times of training and internship, but 18 years, and I've got to add this too, I don't think Elisha was all that young when the mantle had been put on him in the field. A lot of times when you have the flannel graph, any of you old enough to remember the flannel graph we'd have in Sunday school, Elisha was always really young and Elijah was always really old. I don't think Elisha was all that young. Why do I say that? Because even though his parents were still alive and he wanted to say goodbye, it's very, very clear that the one who had been given charge of the family decisions was Elisha. Perhaps his father was frail, mentally not strong. Uh, Elijah had become functionally the patriarch of the family. So I'm doubting that when that mantle was put on him, that he was a teenager. And so for those of us who are no longer teenagers, that's probably 12 of us who are here. uh, The call of God can come into our lives much later than we'd anticipated. That means there's hope for us if we haven't found it yet, right? Right. There's still something that God is going to do in our lives. And that was happening. But then to have to wait 18 years. And after that time, when you come to Second Corinthians 2, uh, did you notice as Louise was reading it? She read that so well with all those hard words in there. As once uh, Elisha had come to a point after 18 years that he wondered if this was real. He needed to have a little hand-holding. Elisha, Elijah, he said, I know that your time is close uh, for you to be taken. Now, will you confirm to me that I'm going to be the one who's your uh, successor? And and that's what's meant when he said, will you let me have a double portion of your spirit? Many people have thought that he's asking for two times as much power as Elijah had. That's not what he's asking. A double portion would go to the firstborn in a family. And and if you look at verse 7 of 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, uh, there were at least 50 other prophets who were serving God in different ways. And again, that's reconfirmed in verse 15. You see what Elisha is asking. Now, originally, I was supposed to receive your mantle. Remember putting that smelly thing on me. But 18 years have gone past, and there are a lot of us around here, Elijah. Are, am I really going to be the one who is the main spokesman in the line of Moses and of Joshua? And uh, as Louise read, did you notice that as they were crossing the Jordan, Elijah and Elisha were there and Elijah took out that coat and slapped the river with it and it parted from right to the left and they crossed over? Does that remind you of anything else in the Bible? Those of you who almost never go to church, you, you need to know this happened with Moses and then the successor had happened with, with Joshua. So when Elijah did this, he was the main spokesman in the line of God's major prophets. This is what Elisha is asking about. And I love Elijah's response. Well, uh, that's not not for me to determine. You know, it's not my choice. That's God's choice. But I'll tell you this. If if you're here while I'm taken away, then then you will be the one. sounds so much like, if you look back at chapter 19, when Elisha had asked Elijah, is it okay if I go back to my parents? Elijah had said, well, what is that to me? It's not my decision. It's not between you and me. It's between you and God. Ask him. So we seek counsel, but you see that God deals with each one of us. That's the point I was trying to make when I began. Each one of us has a relationship to the creator God. And so that's all that he would say to him. So what's going to transpire? Ah, It's great. Um, Elisha gets the chance. To see that chariot, that war chariot, come and take Elijah away? Is he going to be the one in the line of Moses and Joshua and Elijah? Let, let, me, just let, let me just let the Bible tell you its story. Verses 13 and 14, Second Kings 2. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took that cloak that had been torn. He took that cloak that had fallen from Elijah. And he struck the water with it. Where now is Yahweh, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left. And he crossed over. What a story. What a story. Now, what do we learn from it? Oh, we're going to have to learn fast. I see that. All right, several things. Number one, I think you and I need a call from God. There is a need for a call. I believe that all of us who are made in God's image, all who are human, if we're going to live well, we've got to have a sense of God's call upon us, that there's more to live for than just my own material well-being. I tell you, if, if you and I have all that this world has to offer, as Elisha did, but don't have a sense that there's some reason behind it, that God has something he wants to do through it and through us, if you don't have that, you're not going to find a life that has a sense of lasting purpose. Do you see that? Elisha had the life, but he didn't have a sense of purpose. And the reason he celebrated was that he found what he'd been made for. I was talking about this in a setting back on the... Trinity Campus, where I used to serve, and Pastor Tim Keller pointed me to a series of articles that had come out in the turn of the millennium, from 1999 to 2000, in which the New York Times Magazine had put together a series of articles called the Me Millennium. Now, in this New York Times Magazine, it said that the modern world began When people shoved God out of the center of their lives and of the universe and put self into the place of God. What do you think of that? You do know that the New York Times magazine isn't a religious magazine. You know that, don't you? And yet it said that, that that's when the modern world began shoving God out of the center, putting self into the center. And so people who had shoved God out of the center, me millennium. Uh, wrote a series of articles about what life was like. And i tell you, they are telling articles. And I just picked out one of them to see. It's by a a man named David Samuels, who was then a young man from Manhattan's West End. And his article was called, just listen to this title, In the Age of Radical Selfishness, What It's Like Being 30-something, Overpaid, and Totally Disconnected. I'll read you just a part of it. He had broken up with his girlfriend. His life seemed empty. When my girlfriend and I broke up, um, I had concluded that our problem wasn't just sex or high-pressure careers or guilt or the boredom inherent in serial monogamy. We had no direction, no vision for the future in our relationship. And our ability to imagine a future together was not ours alone. It was a symptom of a larger fracture or collapse involving however many hundreds of thousands of people in their 20s and 30s who seemed to lack any sense of necessary connection to anything larger than their own narrowly personal aims and preoccupations. Are you with me there? They they couldn't find anything to live for more than just what they wanted to do. He goes on. In the aftermath of the civil rights movement, the women's liberation and other changes, basic laws of social gravity had lost their pull for us. We have thought we're free to be white or black, gay or straight, to grow our hair long or shave our heads, to have children or not have children, to watch television until three in the morning and otherwise just exist outside of traditional roles and rules that had burdened and constrained our parents. But this freedom from the age-old constraints was accompanied by a weightless feeling that attached itself to even the most fundamental decisions. Why bother with anything? Why get married? What are families for? I've written this down so you can look at it. The harder I concentrated back then, the hazier that promise, that living for self was real living, became. The problem is that the self was never meant to save us from death or imbue our lives with meaning and purpose. The self is the root of selfishness. And selfishness is what makes us unhappy. Sounds like a preacher, don't you think? The world has been telling us for decades That the only way for you and me to find a real life is to be free from anything outside telling us what to do or how to live. So we are told in countless ways that the only way that you and I can enjoy life is to focus on ourselves. And that way of thinking has made its way sometimes into the church. The only way to enjoy a church is to have something that's focused on you and what you like. Do something for yourself, we're told, when we're not happy. You deserve it. You've earned it. That's how you live. And the implication is that the only way we can have a happy world is when everyone everywhere is living for his or her own happiness. It's anarchy. (laughs) And the result of all of that is mass unhappiness. So, counter-culturally, I declare to you today, God made you for a reason. Whatever else you hear in this sermon today, hear that God did not make you by mistake or by chance. But hear this too. The life for which you were created does not take place when you take charge. But that when you seek God, hear him and respond in obedience to him. Then you say, (laughs) woohoo, I found what I was created for. We need a sense of call. Is there any amen? Second, there's faith required in the call of God. By this, I just want you to know that when we are seeking to follow God, that does not exclude times of waiting and sometimes wondering. I I just don't want you to go out of church being surprised that you've said, okay, Lord, I've heard you. I'm going to follow you. And then you find yourself just waiting to see how it's going to play out. Uh, Elisha waited 18 years. All through those years, he shows us something. He remained obedient to God's call. He served God's people. So, what about us? We say, God, I want to follow you. And then you don't get into that college that you wanted to get into. Uh, you uh, you don't yet have that that spouse or those children that you know you would appoint to yourself if you were the Lord of the universe, right? It hasn't happened yet. What if you do not yet have that job that you really feel you so desperately need uh, even to provide for your family? I'm just telling you that even in those times, God is in control. And in those times, He will send you to places you would never have chosen. And if you are ready to serve Him wherever He sends you, He will use you to further his mission in this world, in places that you would have never chosen to go. And in those times of waiting, I encourage you to remain faithful to studying God's word so you can know him better. I encourage you to show God's love to each one he brings across your path. I encourage you to devote yourself to prayer. I encourage you to be here every week to worship with God because so often as we gather together, isn't that when God speaks to us so many times? And as always, I encourage you to be a good steward of what what he's given you in that time, of your time, talents, and treasures until that guidance that you may have received at one point comes to fruition. And I can almost hear you say, but Pastor Greg, how long do I have to wait? And I say, start with 18 years and then see what's happening. Lesson three, the breadth of the call. I just want you to know the call of God is to all sorts of places, all sorts of roles in this world. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 anointed three people for service and only one of them was to what we call professional ministry. And it's always is shocking, two of them to the politics of all places. What I want to say is that God, when his call comes to us, he sends us as his people to all sorts of careers, to many different kinds of schools, to all kinds of situations. One of the most powerful things that's been proclaimed from this pulpit in my four and a half years was proclaimed one Sunday by Ajith Fernando. Where any of you at the remember this? Ajith Fernando from Sri Lanka, from this pulpit, declared, and I wrote it here because I've never wanted to forget it. He said, there are no God forsaken places in this world. God sends his people to all sorts of places so something happens and you end up being sent to a prison like the Apostle Paul did when you're there God is there and you find out Jesus is there it's not forsaken by God not politics can you believe it in our day God sends some of us into the political arena not the unemployment lines Sometimes he needs to send some of us there and to tell people there's still hope. God is. You may not see it, but he knows what he's doing. Not our public schools or our great state universities. Those are not God forsaken places. Those are places where God is ready to do a great work. Not not the science labs at Caltech. What am I doing here? Focused on this minutiae. And God says, live for me there. Speak of me there. Just think of yourself this way. When you go into a place, God's representative is there. Have you thought about yourself that way? When a person enters into a conversation with you, that person enters into a conversation with someone called by God to speak of him and to live for him. It's the breadth of the call of God. In the final lesson, I just want us to think about the all encompassing nature of this message I've been pray- preaching, all encompassing nature of the call of God. I just want to tell you that when you believe what, what I've been talking about, that God is imminent, which means He is here and present and working in this world, it changes your perspective on each moment and each decision of life. It changes the way you look at good times and bad. Good times. God is there and there's something he wants to do. Bad times. God is there and there's something he wants to do. It tells us something about times of wealth and poverty. Simply because you may be going through a tough time doesn't mean you're outside of the call of God. Elisha's call was specifically away from one and to the other. Our lives are not random. God is present in this world. He declares that. He's ready to be present in your life. He calls you and me to himself. And then he calls us to go out and to live for him. And he's called you here today. Has he said anything to you? Has he said anything to you? I would encourage you to say yes, Lord. Wherever whatever I am yours and if you haven't heard a thing today Let me just put it together by saying I think god wants you to be encouraged Because he knows you and he knows what's happening in your life right now And today if you just surrender resurrender In obedience to him. He's going to use you wherever you go for when you and I go to a place You and I go as those who have been called and sent by God. And and I want you to be open to anything. Uh, To an authentic prophet's cloak being thrown over you. I just want you to know when you leave church today, God might send somebody across your path. That he has specifically equipped and prepared for the message that you are to give. I tell you, when you think that way, doesn't it just sort of energize every encounter and every moment? And God wants you also not to be surprised. If the life that he gives you today or tomorrow is different from the one you might have chosen. His ways are not our ways. And someday you and I are going to see that his ways are always wiser. And really understood from his perspective and really ultimately ours. They are always better. The call of God. It's always a turning point. Who are we? Who are we? Peter, thinking about these things in his letter, would say this. We are God's chosen people. We are a special possession. We have been chosen and called to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Go in the certainty of that and bring glory to His name. Amen. Amen. Let, Let me lead us in prayer as our musicians come. Father, we pause before you at the end of this service. Father, we can see one another. We've sung with one another. We've given our offerings together. But, Father, we believe you are here. And I pray that if there are some who have come today who have never for the first time said, I believe in you, and today is my day of turning from my own selfish way of living, giving you my sins, and receiving the forgiveness that comes through Jesus your son. I want to make Jesus my savior. May this be your day of. Of a turning point. Of beginning to walk with God. I, I can only tell you. Life really begins when you do. For the rest of us. Who have gathered here. Who have surrendered our lives to God. But so often go back home. And take our lives back over. Have this to be a day of. A reconfirmed, full surrender to the God who loves you more than you could ever love yourself and has a life of eternal purpose and meaning in mind for you. Our Father, do your work in our lives, whatever that may be. We are yours. We want to live to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.